I'm delighted to be working again with the Australian fashion label Spell to support the Climate Council. The Climate Council is our go-to non-profit organisation for independent, trustworthy information and solutions on climate change. Give them a follow on Instagram, they're at the Climate Council, and find out more about how donating can support their important work. Here's some more info from scientist and Climate Council founder, Tim Flannery. Hi, I'm Tim Flannery. I'm Chief Counselor at the Australian Climate Council. This podcast is proudly brought to you by the Climate Council, an independent, crowdfunded not-for-profit providing Australians with independent information on the science, impacts and solutions of the climate crisis we are facing. In 2013, the Federal Climate Commission, Australia's independent source of climate change information, was abolished as the first act of the incoming federal government. But within days, thousands of people chipped into Australia's biggest crowdfunding campaign to launch the new community-powered Climate Council. Since then, we've launched hundreds of peer-reviewed publications on climate impacts and solutions and shaped the national conversation on climate. We're made up of some of Australia's top scientists, researchers and volunteers. We like to call it people-powered climate science. Visit climatecouncil.org.au for independent, authoritative information on climate change or become a supporter today. This partnership is made possible through Australian fashion label Spell. By partnering with four-purpose brands, the Climate Council can reach even more Australians to educate and empower people to lead, act and advocate for action to address the climate crisis. For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics and the business and madness of fashion. Yay, we're back. Welcome back to Series 6 of the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Series 6, can't believe it. I've missed you. I couldn't be happier to be back. And I wanted just to begin by saying a big, big, warm-hearted thank you to you, dear listeners, for helping build this community. You can find me, as usual, on Instagram at Mrs Press and the show at The Wardrobe Crisis. Your support makes a difference. Okay, June the 20th was World Refugee Day, when UNHCR, which is the UN Refugee Agency, reminds us to honour refugees around the globe. And of course, we should do that every day. But on this particular day, we really sort of take to heart refugees and celebrate their strength and courage as people who've been forced to flee their home countries to escape conflict or persecution. Last week was National Refugee Week in the UK. And in Australia, where I am, it's this week. So it felt good to begin Series 6 with the extraordinary story of Aminata Conte Biger. Aminata is a UNHCR ambassador here. She's also an author, a speaker, and the founder of the Aminata Maternal Foundation. We met when I was hosting an event for her wonderful book. It's called Rising Heart at an organisation in Sydney that we both support, which is called The Social Outfit and works with refugees and new migrant communities here in Sydney. Like everyone who's heard Aminata tell her story, I was deeply affected by it. But also by her, I'm going to use the word spirit, and... I know it's easy to kind of say that without really thinking it through, that so-and-so seems amazing or has great energy or whatever it is, but I'm confident that you will really feel this when you listen to Aminata on this podcast. She has endured some terrible things, but if I had to think of words to describe her, they wouldn't be about that. They'd be all about love and joy and generosity. Aminata is fabulous. (laughs) She's a clothes horse who loves fashion. As well as being a mum, she's a woman's rights and maternal health advocate. She's a refugee, absolutely. But she is the sum of her many parts. She's proof that we're not one story, even when that story is as big as hers. So in 1999, during the civil war in Sierra Leone, the 18-year-old Aminata was kidnapped by rebel soldiers. She was held captive for a a traumatic few months, and finally freed as part of a negotiated prisoner exchange. When she fled to Australia with UNHCR's assistance, she had no idea what she was coming here to. And, I mean, I just can't imagine how it was to arrive here after all of that with nothing and have to start again. 
I will warn you that our conversation includes reference to rape and details of violence. But it's also a story of fleeing one home to find another and of extraordinary resilience and capacity for love. Remember, you can find the links to Aminata's work and her book in the show notes. Okay, let's meet Aminata. Aminata, I'm absolutely delighted to be talking to you in person. I'm actually in your house and we were saying before how nice it is to do this together rather than through the digital world. Yeah, it is It is lovely. I think I'm getting more excited. I'm starting to meet people in doing photo shoots and meeting someone one-on-one. It's been great, yeah. But actually, we were talking about fashion before we pressed record and there's something quite lovely about being in person and being able to get this impression of someone from the visual and what they dress like and look like because you love it, don't you? I love it. Yes, I love fashion. I love wearing clothes and it, it just makes you feel so different every every day. When you, you're taking care of yourself, you know, that's all. You're taking care of yourself and loving yourself and putting, making effort and, yeah, feeling good. You actually said that you're, you learned that from your father, that first impressions count. Absolutely. I think nobody can deny that in any part of the world, wherever you walk in, before people ask you about your qualification and actually the, the, the attention you get first about how you present yourself. Actually, it's interesting because we always say, don't judge someone by how they look. Don't judge a book by its cover. But we can't, it's just human nature to make an assessment and to have an impression, you know. Yeah, I never understand the saying. I think it it comes from a phrase, the way we treat people, if we treat people unkind. But it's like the same thing when people say, I don't see color, you know. (laughs) Yes, you do. Absolutely. (laughs) It's beautiful to see colors, you know. Can we talk about your book cover? Because I yes. did judge you from your cover. I judged oh, you? you as this joyous, wonderful person, which you are. Mm. It's such a gorgeous picture on the cover I, of your book, <laughs> Rising Heart. It's gorgeous. It is. I, well, exactly. That's what I, I wanted my, whatever the book was going to come out with, it represents me. I see it. I recognize myself. So there was a lot of assumption as to what the cover should be. And I, and I go like, no, that's not who I am. You want a big smile? I want I want a smile. I want something that I, I pass by and I go like, yes, that's me. I don't want a typical look of, of what society thinks African women should look like. So they, I was going to tie my hair. I was, I'm like, I, I don't do that. My hair, I like my hair funky. I like my shell hearing that I wear. I wanted, when people see that, they see me, they go like, ah, yeah. Consistency is very important to mm. me. Let's talk about how we met. We met through fashion, which I love, in person, in real time, and a rarity at that, at that time, (laughs) event at something called The Social Outfit in Sydney. They've actually been on the podcast in series one. We'll share a link. Oh. But tell us about your connection with The Social Outfit. And let me ask you, what were you wearing that day and why? So I was wearing a beautiful uh, jacket, uh, yellow, with all these beautiful flowers on it. And it's an outfit that I wore when we had the Wear the Change campaign. Uh, It's about really raising awareness about how we should not consume with too much um, clothes and also think of the people that make the clothes. So the idea was I was going to wear this same jacket for one week and just change, maybe wearing different pants, but constantly change the style of it. I had really fun with it and for a great cause. I mean, anything that makes me laugh (laughs) and wear fashion, I'm in. (laughs) So yeah, it was really great experience. I was glad to be one of the ambassadors. You're actually on on the board of the social outfit. Why? Mm. Well, the reason why, when I found out about what social outfit was about, I was very, first of all, fashion, I was yes. And about refugees and migrants, I was yes. And the, the purpose of it, like giving refugees and migrants a first chance in Australia, which is something that I know very closely. I've experienced when I arrived in Australia, not able to get a job for seven years. And what that does to a human being, because we do not want to stay on Centrelink. We don't want government to enable us with money, but to get a job, it was incredibly hard. The moment I'll call and ask for a job at that time, this was around 2000. People hear my voice, my accent, my name. And they will say the job has been taken. And then I'll see wow. the job on newspaper again, the local newspaper. So that I really understood. And my first job was given to me by two ladies by, from the, I, was, I walked in, in David Lawrence. And they gave me the opportunity. I've never worked in a store before. I didn't have any experience. But they didn't treat me that something was wrong with me. And I was able to really pick up the experience really quickly. And that was really great. I just want to 
go back to something you said there. So you, you were applying for jobs. Yes. You were making calls yes. and being judged by your accent. Yes. This is racism in action. And then yes. you are essentially seeing that job is still available. That, yes, I see it you on really, the really And I call again. <laughs> Did you? Good. Yes, I'll call again and I'll apply it again. And it hurt, but you feel like you don't have any choice. You're just going to keep giving it a go and give it a go. But you know, you, you know the reason why. And when people say you don't have experience and you, you don't speak good English, well, you've not given me the opportunity to speak English because with what I was looking for was opportunity to interact mm. with a human being, with Australians. So fashion, which I've always loved, and to have my first experience with a high brand like David Lawrence, and that really, I didn't, it's the best company I've ever worked for. That was really incredible to how I grow so fast when people give you that chance. I was able to, the doubt that I've had for seven years not getting a job all went away because I saw how they treated me. So when social outfit came, I wanted to be part of that. Mm. It's interesting because I still think that many people tend to, like the default is to dismiss fashion as superficial. It's yes. just style. It's yeah. not serious. Of course, we know that's not the case, but your example there, both personally and with the social outfit, is about opportunities to develop language skills, yes. feel part of a community. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's acquiring new skills and training too, but it's really about fitting in, isn't it? And being able to yeah. find a, a well, way it, to make money and also be part of something. Yes. Well, I think it's, yeah, you want to get a job and pay, but I think with fashion, it, it really, if people can be honest, it makes you feel good when you dress good. When you look when you look your best, it makes you feel good. That is nothing, anything artificial at all. So, and when you feel good about yourself, it makes you want to achieve something. And it, it, you, you can't achieve something feeling horrible about yourself. Mm. You know, there's no glory or joyous in that. So for me, that is a really combination that it doesn't matter if people see it that way. I know what that makes me feel when I wake up in the morning and look after myself and get dressed. I feel really good. And I, yeah, that's what fashion power is about. Power of fashion. Yes, it is. Can we talk about <laughs> the power of shoes? Oh. <laughs> Never underestimate the power of good shoes. I'm quoting from your book, yes. Rising Heart. yes. Talk to me about that. Well, I, I, again, I bring in fashion in. I love sh- shoes. I'm, I love wearing heels. There's and a massive pile. I know there's the a massive pile just here trying to find a home for them where they should go. But um, I think it's not even having a lot of it. And I remember when I, and people notice. Again, uh, I didn't even wore that shoes for me to be noticed. I just felt really good in this beautiful red heel, Italian shoes, and very comfortable also. And I got up the stage and they asked me to lift my pants because I was wearing these high-waisted pants. And they wanted me to see the shoes. And, and, they, and everybody in the room was so curious. And that's what people remember me for the first time I told my story. So with my traumatic story, people took something out of that, saw a human. And again, it was not intent. But if I would have gone in and feeling all daggy, they would have remembered that sad person. And I'm, so, yeah, so, yeah, you don't underestimate that. I'm an you've been here for 20 years, so you've picked up the Australian lingo. For international listeners not familiar with the word daggy. Yeah, oh, daggy, oh, yes, did I just say that? Which I love. It means a bit dowdy. Yeah. <laughs> only Aussies use that word, I love it. Um, where were you talking when you wore these red alligator print shoes and uh, these high-waisted pants? I was at the at Parliament House. Yes. Wow. Yes, I was at Parliament House. It was the first time I was sharing my story and had about 500 people there. And I wanted to be my best. And then because I've had those comments about what refugees should look like, and that was something I was so going to be against. I was going to go all the way to the opposite side. And, and for me, when I enter into those places where I, I went a lot to UNHCR event, I wanted to be Aminata. I wanted to be, the, yes, the girl that I've gone through that, to be seen because we all want to be seen. I don't want to be loved or liked and stuff like that, but I am human and I wanted to feel that way. So, so again, it was not intent for any comment, but I was feeling good and proud of myself. Let's talk about other people's preconceptions, though, because you tell a story in the book about a lovely woman who you were saying really, you know, was someone that you knew and that you know now and has a good heart. But she reacted to you like, oh, gosh, you you look like a model. You can't be a refugee. Yes. She didn't realise what she was saying. Yes, I, I think those comments have kind of 
been there, but I think for me that was so striking because I was in, again, it was a parliament house. It was different event. Mm. And I was at the event of UNH chair. And I know from her, she was saying that I was beautiful. But the idea that I don't look like refugee. Well, she was trying to give you a compliment, but yes, unfortunately it was a compliment. what it also said was that there yes. are these preconceptions of what a refugee should yes. or might look like. Yeah, but also that's the that's the problem though, with a lot of conversation here in Australia, because I live in Australia. The compliment people give, for them it looks sound like a compliment. <laughs> and that's why we don't react when the compliment are given. Because you're like, okay, I better not react because I went away thinking to myself having that conversation because if I would have reacted saying, what does a refugee look like, that would have felt offended. So these are the, again, conversations that you keep having in public that you can't really challenge because then you look like you're getting too offended or getting mad or God, angry. but you want to, right? Yeah, but you want to. You want to, you want to I, would, I would have loved to continue the conversation with her mm. because I knew it was coming from a good place, but then you were coming from a place where you don't know the person also to assume that. That's what a refugee should look like. I'm going to read out some lines from your book. Okay. You write, asking for help is very hard, not just because it's a matter of pride, but also because there is pressure to look downtrodden, sad and defeated all the time, as a refugee should look. And then to be eternally grateful for anything coming your way. Mm. God. So Mm. there's this idea that because potentially you've lived through traumatic circumstances and everyone's story is different, but because something has caused you to flee Mm. and to seek refuge, ergo, Mm. you've got to look like it's all too hard, you're Mm. downtrodden, you're in need of assistance all the time. It's very patronising, isn't it? It is patronising, but I think it's also a system that I've been placed that people want to feel needed and want to feel like they've helped you or they want to feel like they are saving you. So that's where it comes from, really. I think in the West, we, we have this, there's this idea of like, I know this person and I have helped them. And I always, I said in my, I think I said that in my book, my father always said, when the right hand give, the left hand should not know. So there's nothing sort of that. So I think when you come for help, when you tell somebody I need a help, and if you don't look the part, you don't get the help. And, it, and I know that there's so many help things that I would have got if I played that role. And I refused to play that role. I really did. I was like, I'm not going to do that. And still people still tell to me, I mean, that doesn't look poor. Mm-hmm. I remember a comment that somebody said, we were having a meeting and said, oh, somebody said that to me and said, I mean, that doesn't look poor. I'm not poor. I mean, I wasn't poor. No, and I'm not poor here. I might have a circumstances. I might be in the circumstances. But what does poor look like? You know, they want to see you crumble. And then they then taking you up, then you're entirely grateful mm. to them. And extremely for refugee, but also for human being. We like that idea of like, I'm helping that person. No saying that, okay, I'm going to be there and give that person a push. And I always, I said to my friend the other day, we're like a little, you know, when they, the chicks give birth and, and even animals, they're pushing the baby, you know, to gradually get up. That's what we all need, human being. We all need that in our life. It doesn't matter if we have so much money. Gosh. And I think... Yeah. I wonder if you're listening to this and questioning whether you've ever done this, Mm. perhaps by mistake or perhaps not really thinking it through. I just want to repeat what you said there because it's stuck in my head and I love it. The lesson from your your father? Yes. When the right hand gives, the left hand should should know. Yeah. So once I sense that if somebody's about to help me and I sense that that person is for their own gain, I don't take it. I really don't. And I think uh, that's why my faith is so important. So that's why a lot of times I've been in a place where people don't think I'm in that place because I'm always around other people that are way high, but I will not take. And I know they will give me the help, but I, I can sense who I can take certain help from because I know the ego, what I would demand of me. Because then I'm not able to be me and I have to stand in a platform and I have to be thanking that person all the time. I choose the help that I get. And I always feel like deliberately sometimes God doesn't make people give me some help because he, he doesn't want me to be entitled to them, to thanking them and remember. So when I stand in a platform and in my book, even I remember when I was writing my book, the people that I admire most, I was calling Maya Angelou and Sidney Poitier and then Muhammad Ali. And someone said to me, oh, but don't you think you should add the people that you know here? I said, hell no. And I go like, why should I? These are not the people that I look up to when I was going through things. I love and respect them. And that was even, again, another thing. Why are you calling people that I should be 
that I've admired, that I look up to. Oh, God. And that was really like, a, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, that was really something. I was like, oh, my God, she still don't get it. Like, I'm, and I was like, oh. no, I admire people like Muhammad Ali. I knew he stood for integrity. You know, I admire people like Sidney Poitier because there were times when he was the first black man that ever stood and did a movie. And uh, so those things meant something to me. It made me really overcome life in Australia that you don't know. But for you to even claim that I should remember the people that I know, no, mm. I don't want to. So I didn't. But I was interesting again mm. because they are seeing the people that are in my life. They don't even know how they're helping me, but they don't see that I'm helping them. You know? We talked about UNHCR before. You're an ambassador, mm. a special representative yes. for UNHCR Australia, is that right? Australia for UNHCR, yes. Incredible. We've talked about and interviewed guests involved with the UNHCR, which is the UN Refugee Agency, on this podcast before. And I'll point listeners in particular to an episode with Helen Story, yeah. who was the first artist in residence um, in Zatry refugee camp in Jordan. Incredible. We will oh, share yeah. a link. Yes. But, but tell me about what... UNHCR means to you? UNHCR, it is an organization, but I see UNHCR as a person, really ideal, because when I got released after the war, when I went to Guinea Conakry and I walked in this gate and they already knew of my story, that I've been on the news and I've been released. And I remember this one person who was the head, um, Sydney, just came in and just focused on my story. He knew things that, was, that have happened to me, how that has traumatized me, that I didn't understand what was going on. So I've always seen them as a, as a person. And they were the organization that knew that I was in danger. My country was not in a place to protect me. They protected me. So when I came to Australia, and I've always wanted to be of service, I always wanted to give back because the way I was brought up by my father. And when I met my spiritual dad, Michael Dwyer from church, he and Naomi started the UNHCR here. We had this beautiful relationship. And when he realized I'm a refugee, he started taking me to events. So I was like, oh, they're here. So I didn't know too much about them. And then I started really volunteering. So it was, again, it was not in a place to do anything. I didn't know there's such a representative exists or ambassadors. But I loved there going, packing newspapers, envelopes and doing that. And it was really incredible because I was working at David Jones for David Lawrence. The department store, yes. yes. And I'll, for my lunch break, I'll come to the store in King Street and do packing Did you? on my lunch break. And one day so I for like leaflets and things? Too. Yes, just put them in yeah. an envelope and, and make it. And I felt so much joy because I felt like that I was giving you back. You were giving back, yeah. So that, it meant so much to me. It's a really uh, organization that will always be part of my life and I will continue to get involved as much as they need me and have so much respect for um, what Naomi had created here, Naomi's chair, and what the organization is doing, not even in Australia, beyond the, mm. the refugees in camp for like 20 years. Mm. And they get support, and they've left their home, they've lost their life, they've lost their family. Well, because of organization like UNHCR, they're able to be hopeful again. So yeah, it's a face to me, it's a person. Can we talk about how you ended up there in Guinea? What? Let's go back further than that. You've mentioned your father. Yes. Tell us a little bit about your family. Oh, um, I love my, my my dad. I feel like I feel like I'm in love with him every time. He's he's past uh, gone, seventeen years now, and I grew up with my dad and three other siblings. My father was a businessman that traveled a lot around Europe. And London, he loves London. <laughs> he thinks that's where you can get a better education. Um, and we grew up very disciplined. My dad was very strict, very disciplined. And education was extremely important to him. And especially for his daughters. He, for his daughter, he wanted us to be so educated that we always make a joke that he, will, he can open our head and fix a dictionary in there. He wanted <laughs> us. And he was not somebody that was really that educated. And he, he, he wanted that for he his wanted children. wanted for his children because he always believed that with education, we can live any part of the world and we'll be able to look after ourselves. And that was so, that was important because he almost felt like we are going to be living somewhere in this world. So we had that and we grew up in Kisi in Freetown, capital city Freetown. And so that's a suburb. That's of, a suburb of Kisi. Freetown. Yes, yeah. of Freetown. And there's a lot of what I would say now, poverty 
but we didn't see people as poor because my dad put us in this big mansion house in the middle of there. And I knew, I know that he did it de- deliberately. He didn't want us to live in the city, in the posh places. He wanted us to be around this kind of life and see what, how people lived. And we saw how he treat people. He was very respected member of the community. Extremely. My dad would never, I've never seen my dad roll his eyes on anyone. He was very calm, very quiet, very neat and tidy. I think I got that from him. (laughs) He looked after us. We didn't grow up with our mothers around. So I have nine siblings and he'll wake up in the morning and put his apron on, do our breakfast, even though we have cooks, but in the morning that our breakfast is done by him, drive us to school. So we grew up very privileged, very privileged, but we were not, it was not in our head. We, we really, he didn't put, put us in private school, like he put us in the best public school. So they were, yeah. What sort of child were you? I was very, I was very sicky. I was very like a sicky child. I get sick a lot. And now looking back, I think maybe I was missing my mother and not knowing that. Because she was in Guinea. She was in Guinea, Conakry. So I don't have any memory of my mom. So I, I got really sick quite a bit. They could not find anything. And I, so because of that, I, I believe that's why I claim to be the favorite of my dad. <laughs> but none of us know who is the favorite, honestly. So I was closely to him all the time next to him all the time, like a, a baby child in Sierra Leone, but we had our baby sisters in London. So with that, with that, I had a lot of more affection from him. And I was quiet and I love going to the poor places. I was always out, like going to the old houses and yeah. You were also strong because your grandfather had a name for you. What was it? Yes, my grandfather called me Batagine, which means uh, the strength of a woman and the most powerful woman. So he in named, Susu, in Susu, yes, he named me that just when I came from hospital. And he's always he's never one called me Aminata or any other name, so he called me that. And I th- and I think for me, I've always believed that names are very important. How in the words that we speak to our children, our friends, our relationship. It's so important how I find words can be so hurtful. You can carry that through your life. So for me, I think my grandfather spoke that on me and my father treated me like that. And my brother, who I was kidnapped with, really thought I was going to be this person. So he was extremely protective. He felt like he needed to protect me. So that's why even when I was kidnapped, he followed me. He was not really taken with me. He saw that I was taken away by this rebel and then he followed so I've had people in my life that have really saw a light in me. And that was, yeah, important. The war had been going on since 1991. Yes. And of course you're aware of it, but you write in your book that war seemed to come slowly to you. Yes. It's almost like life carries on. And I wanted to ask you about that because for those who are lucky enough to have lived only in peace or through peace, you can't imagine, but this war and its hideous violence rumbled on for so many years. Yes. You have to kind of keep living life until it interrupts you. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I thought of that when we had a bushfire in Australia. And even though people were donating, we were all just living, passing through. And I remember saying to my girlfriend that was a Marion who got affected by the war too. And I said, oh, this reminds me of back home when the war was happening. And then we were just living, moving on with life. And for some reason, I just went, my mind just went through it. And, uh, and that's what we did. We went to school and life was happening until it got there. Mm. And we saw the war also because we saw people, refugees fleeing to Capital City with amputated hand, with, with the, the horror of it. We see it, but we're able, again, human, we have, we almost feel like we have amnesia. We forget, like in few days we forget we go mm. on to life again. But it was a very strange time because you mentioned the violence, but you also had this heightened feeling of security. You talk about you had to leave your boarding school because of the war in 1995, but then when you were back in town, there was more security at school. But you also talk about a feeling that there were spies amongst your community, that you had yes. to be careful what you said or yes. who you talked to. Well, yes, because the rebels, you can't really, the rebels are no, they don't have a uniform. They don't have, a, you know what I mean? It's like terrorists. You don't see people and you go like, they are, they are civilians. They were in Among Us. So that's why even when they attacked the capitals, the day they entered, it was almost like they came from the cloud and just, come down. It was not like you You can hear from afar, they're coming, coming. It was, they were already in the city. 
they were already in the city waiting for a time. And they, they have radio, they listen to the news. We listen to BBC all the time when I was kidnapped. So they, they, they were civilians. And I think that's how the war traveled from Liberia and to Sierra Leone and Guinea was very careful to not bring that in mm. because you can't really tell between the civilians and, and the rebels. How old were you in 1999? I was um, just over 18. Can you tell us what happened on that day when the rebels came to your street? Uh, yeah, I remember uh, we've gone to bed. We, we It was a school day, like a normal day, and it was, I think, around between five or six, and we're sleeping. It was not, again, as I said, it, it, you feel like it came from the cloud and just fall on you because we, we went to bed and ready to go to school, and we just hear this big sound, like this heavy sound coming from people screaming. And we knew straight away they've entered. Like we knew the sound of it, you know, straight away. It's like a volcano. And I remember we opened the window, we, we watched through the window and it, all of, we were surrounded around smokes. So you could not see clearly. You could see fire, you could you see houses being burned and you see um, people screaming because they're in the house and they're being burned. You can, you, then you start getting the smell. So you're in this big house and you've seen all the horror. And I remember my dad coming upstairs because I was on the second floor. My dad coming upstairs and we knew why he was coming because he didn't want us to go out. There was no way he would let us go out, running around. And when war happened, it, war is something that nobody should wish on anyone. It's, it's real. You, you just... This, like you are fighting for your life. And um, I remember him coming upstairs and I knew that we knew that him coming upstairs for us to be gone together because our house is huge. It's the biggest house in the area. And while these houses are being burned, going and going continuously, nothing is happening with our house and we're not even thinking about it. And then all of a sudden we hear like a bang on the door and people run to our house. And um, we were thinking at the same time, why are people coming to this house? You normally would go to a small house or go somewhere to hide, not a, a house that is bright yellow. And, and, and it took like a me, house that looked like a target. Yes. And they know straight away they're looking for wealthy people. And for them, for the rebels, people with that house might be a politician, will have money. So when my, and my dad asked us to open the gate and then we don't even know what we're opening to, it might be rebels coming in. And everybody came and people stayed. needing help. Yes, people needed help. And they just came in. And I think, again, I always say with my story, I'm always fascinated by it myself because for, for those couple of weeks, nothing was touching my house. All the house around us has been burnt. So you then, within your house and its complex, yes. had lots and lots of people who'd fled. Oh, yes. Your neighbors, basically. Yes. How, yes. how many? Over a thousand. Yes, because it's it's a massive house, but it's not neighbors. These are people that have run from coming from nowhere. We don't know them. It's not like people coming from the, the local area. There were few, but these are people that were around coming from Wellington, far away, like three hours away. They were just running, running, but then they stopped there. Your father let them in and welcomed them. My father them let them in as refuge. Yes, and because my dad, the way we store our our provisions, he will, our house we have a storage where we're full of rice like bags and bags of rice. So there were a lot of food that really fed a lot of these people because that's how we lived in our, in, in our home. So, so how long were you in the house pretty much under siege or feeling like mm, that? For about two and a half, three weeks. And it was so quiet. It was incredible because nobody could even drop a little pin or water because they're scared that, you, you're going to trigger something outside. So it was, you could tell nobody's living in the house. And then the food, we were eating the food that we had with people and sharing it. And then just after those weeks though, and what was also so important that we were still seeing the horror. And I always say to people, it's incredible because you, want, you can't even help staying away from watching. And because my... What my, do you mean, so out the window? So my window is the way our house was built our glass is bulletproof. And then I can see people from the outside, but people cannot see me from the inside. And what did you see? So we see all the shooting, the, the hands, like we were watching it. So you, it, 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 it makes my body just crawl because you're in the safe place and not really safe, thinking that in a two second, that person is going to look up or they're going to say, who is there? 
but you're watching what is happening, but you almost cannot justify not watching because you feel like watching your feeling for them. God. You can't say, oh, I'm just going to stay and cover my face. No, you, you, you go like, I want to see what is happening. How, how it, you can't escape from it. So we, we leave there watching that for, again, I do not understand how they did not come to our home and knocked, but then they finally did. And when they did, they said, we're going to burn the house if nobody comes out. And I think even the person that said I wasn't sure if there was people in this house, I think they were just shocked. We could see, didn't know the numbers of people in there. Well, they were shocked that, why is this house standing here? Mm-hmm. Because I remember well, we, we heard somebody say, who owns this house? And, and then they, it was so quiet. And then they said, if nobody comes out, we're going to burn it. So they didn't know people were in it. And then we had to, because they would have done that. They had petrol already. And they started putting, my dad had this leather chair that I always remember. Mm-hmm. So I put a petrol there. And again, it's once again, it's because of his kindness, that somebody said, who, who owns this house? And the, one of the civilians started explaining, oh, is this man that I've given the hotel? And some of the rebels knew about that, what he has done. When you say given the hotel, we should say that um, Aminata's father had a, a hotel in, yes. in, a, in Wellington, Wellington. Wellington and allowed large numbers of displaced people to use it as a refuge. And so gave yeah, everyone and didn't charge them rent. Yeah. Right. So everyone knew that he was a Everybody good man. Everybody knew that. What happened then? So the access to come out, and I, I didn't see my sister and my other two brothers. Uh, we've all, again, gone. Everybody's just fighting for their lives. And I, I was close to my dad. And I remember holding his hands. They've asked us to come out of the house. Well, when you say they, what, what, did, the rebels. what did you see? Who, who were they? So these were just rebels who, they, at this, this specific time, they were pushing. The government was pushing the rebels. So they're becoming more intense. It was very, very intense. So the rebels, like it's, it can be 50 of them or 20 of them screaming, but they've had and drugs, alcohol. So you don't really know where their mind is. They don't know where their mind is. But what are you faced with? Young men with guns? Young men with guns, kids. The young child soldiers were the most one you should be more afraid of. Really, because their brain is not there. Like it's been messed up with drugs and they've done really vicious things. So they would just look at you and shoot you. Just like that. So when they asked us to come out, we saw like over like 50 more coming, screaming, driving their car, like really screaming, like with the war. Oh, Lord. Um, I'm sorry to ask It you. was really, it was just, they, they're almost celebrating but fighting and moving forward. Yeah. And then we, and they asked us to come out and I hold my dad's hands. His hands were shaking. He had Parkinson and I was trying to control it. So he was suffering from Parkinson's disease? Yes, Parkinson's d- disease, yeah. And so I was trying to keep his hand still while it was shaking. And then I, I just, my eyes just went with this rebel Dharami. We just, just looked. I just turned, we looked at each other and I just knew it was coming for me. They were singling out beautiful young girls. Yeah. And young girls that. and girls who have never had sex before, who have never been with a man before. So that is something for me that I became really obsessed with when he realized that because I've never had any experience with any man before. Did you feel that he picked you out? He didn't know because he they don't pick one person. Like Darami had about four girls. So when he asked me as soon as he said come here, you come here, I just walk, I let go of my dad's hands. Why did he do that? Well, because we knew already the war, we've already, as I said, we know the stories and we know young girls who were taken, if the parents fight, they kill the girls or they, they rape the girls in front of the parents or they would shoot. The, so there they, they were like five, ten different things that I knew was going to happen. But your instinct to walk towards this terrible man was mm. to protect your father. I, yeah. I've never really felt like I would ever protect anyone. Because I was being protected all my life. I was in this bubble, really bubble. People don't talk about their bubble. I, I was in a beautiful protected bubble. And for me, it was just a let go and did not look. I never looked at my dad's face because I was scared of looking. And I didn't know what had happened, what was going on. And I didn't know if they were going to shoot everyone because we thought us coming out to the field, they were just going to shoot people. That's what they did. And I almost feel like it's a blessing that when he took me, he didn't stay because I would have been forced to look my dad. So we just walk away. He just took me and walk away. And how many people were taken roughly that day? 
for for what I remember, I remember being the first person that they took because everything was just chaotic. So I remember what I remember firstly, I was the first one that was taken, but there were girls already that he had picked up that was standing in the corner, not from the group. But in that group, I remember when he, they were wondering what was happening in the war. We can hear the bomb, the echo mark there. Everything was happening. So echo mark, can you tell us that? Echo mark, that's echo mark. That's the international soldiers that come to help the country. So everything was it's confusing. Chaos. chaos. So then he had already had girls that were standing on the side. So when he took me, he just collects us to go. So I didn't see what happened at the end, and I didn't know anything from that side on. And I didn't even know how they let go of all of them. And, um, yeah. And after that, you were marched away into the hills. Yes, we walk up the hills, and because, again, we're finding places where to hide, we have to start changing our clothes because you have to wear clothes that camouflage the like, color, not anything bright, they'll shoot you because then the helicopter is up. They can spot you, so we have to wear black or green, anything dark or gray or khaki, uh, but not anything flashy. And How can you remember? You must have been so petrified. I can't imagine, and I feel terrible to even ask you to share your story. Yeah. Do you remember how you felt? Did you feel anything? No, you can't feel. You can't feel. You, can't feel. you, you you're not in the place to feel nothing. You're in a place where you, you, you've been kidnapped, and then you have the government fighting the rebels, not knowing who is the civilian. So you can be killed by them accidentally because they can't tell. And also we've been used as a human shield. So they were, when the governments are fighting, they'll put civilians and give them guns to pretend. And so so the idea of you thinking of you even your think- parents, I didn't even think of my dad that much. Like when I left, I didn't. Like you... <laughs> Do you think I'm going to die now? Or do you don't think that? You don't think you're going to die. You, you might be just dead when, while you're thinking. There are guns passing around. You pass something and you see a, a car. They put petrol in cars a lot. So the exposure. So, you know, you're not thinking you're going to die because the way, moment you think about it, you might be dead. So you think, oh, I'm going to be dead. No, where do you get that thought? Where do you get that minute or that second, that moment? Mm-hmm. You don't. And it really, that's what war is. Wow. You you found friends there. You found yeah. some young women who you'd known from school. From school. Yes. Who were in that group. Yes. Yeah, who you were able to support one another through this experience as much as possible. Yeah. So when I don't believe in coincidence because we met each other, we've gone to school, but we all come from a very strict home. So I was the child that was dropped at school, pick up back. So I don't have friends at school, but we knew each other. So when we, we, we when this person took all of us, this and Darami, the rebel, so we became instantly bond because the first night we spent with Darami that were uh, raped by this one person that even bond us together. And I remember just being in this room, we were trying, we clutching to the wall, almost get in it to disappear. And that has really bond us for a lifetime now. We talk as much as we can. We all have, we're all incredibly so proud of each other because we all sort of rise above. And I think having each other has really helped us through that. Having each other, I know I'm the only one so telling my story, which has become a complete shock for them. Complete, complete shock. My heart breaks for all of you. And I do just want to say thank you for telling us your story. It means something enormous, but it's obviously enormously difficult. Yeah. Even though you've gotten yeah. used to being able to do it. Yeah. Why do you want to tell these stories? Tell us about having the bravery to speak up and why you choose to do it. I, 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 I never thought I would tell my story. I just mm. didn't think storytelling or people do sort of things here. But I also knew that I own my story from day one. I knew that this is my story. I'll make a decision anyhow I want to. I never wanted to give anybody that power because sometimes we do in marriage, in relationship, in family. I come from a culture and not just African culture, but a lot of culture don't talk about rape and make that as a as a subject of telling story and bringing awareness around it and I think for me, how that came about, I always wonder how. I don't, I don't know. Something 
obviously out of my heart of serving another person. I think that's how it came about. But I knew that if I was ever going to tell my story, I want to tell it in the fullest way, in the truest way. And when that time came and I started that through UNHCR, but not really telling the depth of it, but I did that with the Bookham Hills. And that's when I met Rose Horan. I think that was a person, again, that just, I knew she wasn't just going to take my story and do it and disappear. So that was how I started telling it. But it really, one of the reasons why I went this far, it's because I know how much when you've been raped or sexually abused in any kind of form, there's two things we carry. It doesn't matter if it's a war in Australia, which happens everywhere in the world, you carry shame and you carry guilt. You carry shame because you, you know something has been taken away that is so secret and that makes you feel less. And for me, once I realized that I was not less, I was not broken by these people because they didn't make me. I sense a really um, a freedom that I will never give to anybody to own. That, and that is something that I... When I, I smile, people say, you smile all the time. I hear things happen, but I am so free. I am so free. Mm. I would say, I would tell my story in front of my kids when that time comes. I would tell them, uh, my husband, I would have never married to a man that would make me feel something is wrong, something has been taken. So the freedom is what I feel like maybe through my story, through the way I have choose to live my life, somebody can be able to have a taste of it because... To be free, it's purely priceless. You can have everything in this world and be not free and be in prison. And I know what in prison feel like. Even when you're in Australia, when I came to Australia, I felt in prison because mm. I carried that shame. Let's just briefly talk about, so that listeners understand, you were rescued or you were handed over, you escaped. I didn't escape. I was part of an exchange, a negotiation that happened between the government and the rebels because we run out of food. We didn't eat for weeks sometimes and medication. And then the negotiation was to release children and then they would give the rebels food. So I was not a child, of course, but I, I became part of that. And that is my miracle. And how many weeks after you were taken did that happen? I was taken away for, uh, I would say, three months. But most of my friends that I was kidnapped, we thought it's seven months. So I don't really, yeah. so I always say Lose several track. months. Mm. So I still can't pick point that yet. So after that, your miracle, when you were basically escorting the children who'd mm. been exchanged. Mm. And then we talked about how you then went to Guinea where your mother was, you were able to do that, you went to UNHCR. And then you said to, was it Sydney? Was that your... Yes, Your yes, case, yes, case officer. But you said to them, I want to go somewhere where no one from Sierra Leone will know me because yes. you'd been on the television. There was a feeling of you'd been in the news. You wanted to go somewhere totally different. Yes. Well, you picked the furthest place. You I could go. <laughs> and I didn't know. <laughs> you oh, also, boy. <laughs> you also said to me that you thought it could have been Austria. Didn't yeah, even no, know. No, I thought it was Austria. I've never heard of Australian before. I never did. And because Australia in Guinea, because the French colonized, they call Australia, Australia. So then I'm thinking like, okay, Austria, well, it's fine. There's not much African people there. And but it was not just that. And then I thought that nobody would know my story. Mm -hmm. I would be the only person that knew my story. And the uh, UNHCR officer, he was, he was like, but that's going to take a long program. And I was part of the first refugee of yours, uh, of course, but it took a long, it took eight months. I would have lived before eight months. I would have gone to US, Canada, or the UK. I'm like, no. And I have family all in that area. I have my sisters, I have four sisters in London. And I didn't want to go there. Didn't want to. Well, I didn't want to. I knew that my story was not going to have a conversation with my family. Right. I was not ready for that. But I didn't want to be taken care of. I really felt this need of taking care of myself. Not in not being, t but not wanting to be treated like something was broken. The UN officer convinced you that to go alone was too much and they said, could you take someone with you? Is there someone who would go with you? And you took mm. your sister. Yes, I came with my sister. It took you three days to get here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you had to fly, what, to France? France and Singapore. And I thought, then I started thinking like... Are you this, here this, yet? <laughs> no, well, I was just thinking like, is this real even? Because some part of my story, I don't think it's real. I get shocked sometimes. So I was like, okay, we're in France. I'm, of course, I'm familiar with all those countries. 
we have family members there. And I was just... You never was, heard stories about Australia? No. And I think it was just the idea of like taking three days to get to country. My dad traveled all the time to London and Europe. I didn't understand the, the, the time, the furthest. On the plane, you were sitting next to Marion. Yeah. Who's become one of your dear friends. Very good. Very, very good sisters. <laughs> but, so you were some of the first Sierra Leonean refugees to arrive in Australia. It was yes. about 20 years ago. 20 years ago, May. Yes. You came here... You were picked up by some volunteers who, obviously amazing people that wanted to look yeah. after you, but the services weren't here. You were given an apartment, but it was empty. Yeah. So you arrive off this long flight, you're taken to this apartment with your sister, Yeah. and you get there, no furniture. No furniture, no. We were so excited because we've been told a different story, and what, are you going to come, what, drop, everything ready. And, and you're still a kid, really, yeah. apart from the fact that you're in a completely different land. Yes. So when we walked in and I'm like, oh, okay. I think there was a fridge even. I don't even sure. No, there was no fridge. And but there weren't flowers waiting. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I just been. wanted food. There wasn't but, even food in the fridge. No, there was no food. So we had to, I remember, we have to put our bags and go straight to IGM in Banks. There was an IGM there. And then we went and get pots, food. So we had to come and cook that day. And I remember we were starving. Off that brutal flight as well. Yeah, like we, we, in Wally Park, we were like, I was, we were starving. Wally Park is a suburb of Sydney, Western Sydney. Sydney. Western Sydney, yes, yes. And again, it was not far from the airport. It was so close. So we're at King George's Road. And we got in and it, like, we got to go to shopping. And we're like, okay, what is going on? But you don't even think about it at all. And as you can tell, when I talk about it in the book, I'm just... Telling the story. I'm not like, oh my gosh, they did that and that. It was just really... Just how it was. We, just how it was. And uh, and finally we got here in Australia, so I'm happy about that. So we just went to um, IGA, uh, the shopping centre. We got pot, we got spoon, like everything. We just got things. And then we started going to St. Vincent's to get clothes because... We, secondhand furniture. Yeah, secondhand furniture. Because we have brought oh, a clothes. lot of African clothes. We bought a lot of African clothes, thinking that there's clothes for us. <laughs> so we had to go to get Western clothes because uh, in Sierra we dress very Western. So the clothes were more for traditional to keep as a souvenir. So most of the time when I go, we used to go out, I used to wear a lot of African clothes because I don't have clothes. So we had to, we used to go to St. Vincent and Smith family and pick up clothes there. I wanted to ask you then, about what the challenges are around that kind of thing that refugees and new migrants from all over the world face when they yeah. come to a new country because your experience is crazy. I mean, mm. I can't imagine coming and there's no food. <laughs> but, I mean, presumably these things happen to all sorts of people. Yeah. What are those challenges? Because you come here and everything is unfamiliar. Yes. Maybe you don't have resources. Like you say, you hadn't brought the clothes you needed. Maybe you're in a new apartment or place that doesn't even have pots and pans. Mm. What, what are those challenges that face refugees and new migrants? Oh, I think first thing is that they, they have a, a shock to the society because I, I believe... A, a shock because it's so strange. It's, so str- it's different. But I think for me, because I didn't know too much about really different part of other culture, when I came, I thought I was just going to be welcome. You know, so I think people get a shock first because there's a, it's, uh, Australia is so far off and people are, with refugee have different attitude. Not everybody have a welcoming attitude. So people have to really try to understand who Australian are. But in a place, he has to be Australian understanding the people, which is not really the, the, the case, I believe. Yeah, you talk in the book about this cultural divide. Divide. So I think there's no really good structure of how we should, even from school, I was the only black girl at school. Then I started realizing I'm black. I never thought I was a black person because everybody was so curious about me. And I think there's a better system that can be placed where refugees, like school have to take a time. They can be a hall where they put the students and go like, we are having a refugee from Serial. This is what Serial is about. This is what mm. have happened there. I mean, it's, it's so basic and simple. Isn't it? And it's common sense. It's common sense. So there was no structure like that. But we that. don't have it. I mean, actually, one of the things that really stood out to me, for, I should just say that, and we'll share a link because you must buy Rising Hearts, but there's so much joy in the book as well as obviously the difficult story and terrible story of the kidnapping there's all this joy all this amazing strength in the book about Mm. how you made your way and all the wonderful work you do so it's not a depressing Mm. book and I don't want to give that impression but there were a couple of other things that stood out to me apart from the the period of the kidnapping in the war 
but it was the racism in Australia made me so mad. You know, just casual racism is a stupid yeah. phrase, but it's kind of the phrase that stuck in my head. Like you go to a restaurant in Manly and everyone's yeah. horrible to you. What? Awful. And yes, I, I, I think most, again, as people of color or people who have been racist against or discriminated, even if you're in disability, you get a shock. There's a shock that happened. And then that's where you can't even express, either you express it from anger or you kept it. And when you express it from anger, then people think you're just overreacting, especially in Australia, because Australians do not like to be, and I'm not talking about the Australian, I'm saying like an individual Australians don't like to be claimed as they are racist. <laughs> yeah, we've got a denial. Most so, racist country I can so, think of that yeah. never admits so any of me, it. So for me, I'm yeah. surrounded by a lot of Australian people. My friends are 90 so percent are Australian. But the moment you say that comment your friend said is, is really racist, you have almost put them together and the friendship is over because... The fact that you can say that you can say that you're almost putting them in the same boat, that's what they will assume. So there's no conversation around how did that make you feel? If I was to tell somebody that, they should have asked, what did they say? What did that make you feel? Or I'll try and have a word with them. You know, that's all. So that that friend can learn not to say something again. So you can't really have this conversation. You can't change without looking at the problem head yeah. on. Yeah. So it's like you were saying about school. That yeah. We need to teach children. You need to teach children. You, you need to. It's not. And to tell another human being about another human being doesn't have to be complicated. And we have made it in the Western world so complicated. There's so many laws, so many rules. We've made it up. Just see them as human. Voila. <laughs> it don't like seriously. They didn't. They didn't there don't need to be any lawyers. There's so many. I think we've just make everything so messy. That it need to be messy. This is a girl coming from this Sudan. She has had this. Their country. I've had this background. She's been a, a case of that. She had a home. She had a backyard. She had everything, but it's been taken away. So let's make her feel welcome. That's it. If you do that at a school hall. Try to learn about their culture. Try to teach them about their culture because we want to know. I don't, I don't believe there's any us refugees in any, that end up in any part of the world that is not grateful. They have survived. They have survived the most crucial to be even alive. First of all, they're grateful. To come to Australia, they're grateful. So if you, as Australian, open your home, your heart, you're going to learn so much. The, the country becomes so much richer. You know, we've um, we've talked about some of the most terrible facets of humanity in terms of like how brutal humans can be. But then let's talk about how kind humans can yes. be and how compassionate and how connected, because you've also experienced that. Oh, I, I experienced that all every time, every every day of my life. I mean, you life. are that to me. Even yeah. that. <laughs> I've experienced that because I, I have always tried to live that. That's the way I was brought up and give that whether somebody receiving it or not. And also know that there's so much good in this world than what is talked about. There is so much good over the little evil or little critic that's happening and we don't shine the light on it. And I know it needs to be shined equally, but unfortunately it's not. But I have been really blessed. I have been truly blessed. I have incredible people in my life. I was going to say, what's good in your life? Go on. You got a good husband. You got good kids. <laughs> I do. I have a good husband. My husband have a good wife. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. He has a really good wife. He's a lucky man and I'm a lucky woman. So equally, and my children are very blessed to have me and I'm very blessed to have them. So I see that equal very equal, and my husband see that equal too. And that's what I, I take out in, in friendship, where it can be challenging sometimes because when you're a refugee or somebody, you always have to be, be next to a savior person. So I've always said, I always speak on behalf of that, that I know that I am lucky to be in Australia, but Australia is very lucky to have me because I am contributing. The laws doesn't upset me. That's the law. I do it. You know, I want to contribute to humanity and to Australian culture. And I know that whoever is in my life, we are giving each other. I don't want to be in a relationship where I take. I'm not a taker. I want to be both giver and taking. So for those legacy, I believe my dad has left through me. I have really 
work hard to maintain that. And I believe that as I tell my story, Australia will, be, will know that there's so many people that they can be part of their life and they will gain so much and the people will gain a lot soon. We are lucky to have Aminata Conte. <laughs> I've got one more question and it's yes. actually a really important one and it's okay. about your foundation. Yes. Um, after the birth of your daughter. Yes, Serafina. Where you had some difficulties in birth, but then everything was fine. You had seven doctors in the room seven. helping you I have know. a safe birth. Yes. And after that, you realised that not everyone would be so lucky and that if you'd been back in Freetown, you might not have had that same experience. Oh, guarantee for sure. So tell us about the Aminata Maternal Foundation. <laughs> um, so we work in Sierra Leone to reduce infant uh, mortality and maternal death. Sierra Leone have the highest infant mortality death in the world, one in 17 women and child die through childbirth, while in Australia it's one to 8,700. Wow. Yes, it is heartbreaking. And for me, when I realized that and I knew that this is not a war, this is something that I can do joyously and share those experiences, I took it straight on board. I have to say I, I am grateful for my, my naiveness to go into it. Because setting up a foundation is hard. It's incredible hard. Uh, and I just, I didn't want to set up a foundation. I said, I want to build a hospital, which is even complicated than anything. So In Freetown? In Freetown, in Africa. And when you're in the Western world, every time you mention Africa, people mention corruption. So you, you feel like you have no hope. So eight years on, <laughs> we have, um, we've raised over six to 700,000 which again, I have to say, I know everybody said this, and I said it before I, I ever heard somebody said that, that you only want to help one person. I wanted to help one woman that looked like me or from Sierra in maternal health. I didn't go into like, oh, I'm just going to do this. So it was, my intention was there. And I knew that there are things that I didn't have, skills that I didn't have, and I had people around me that had it. So I just put people together. Uh, we've been going, we've fully registered and tax deductible. I wake up every morning and I pinch myself and I say, thank you, God, for choosing me to be part of this. I feel so humble and so grateful to belong in life. You know, you're bringing mm -hmm. life into the world. And I always say, there is not a one single person that will not talk to about maternal health, about what I do, because we all come out of a woman. Whether you're gay, you're, you're having children, you're not having children, you are alive. You said that to me when you were yeah. like, come and help us do this walk. Um, so you were working yeah. on a fundraiser that was about walking every day for an hour and 20 minutes, was it? An hour and 20 yes, minutes? 22 minutes, yes. Yep. An hour and 22 minutes. Yes. <laughs> that was how long... A woman can walk from crew bay to our hospital to go deliver baby while they are in labor. Gosh. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I said to you, well, I not, might not be the best person because I'm not a mama. And you said, but you've got one. <laughs> <laughs> you We've got all one. got this connection. We all got it. it you know matter. one. <laughs> you know one, your auntie, your, even if you know your, your, uh, a godmother yeah. or god something, you know what it feels like. We're running out of time, but yeah. I don't care. I, I just got, I can't, I've got to ask you this. So just tell us how, how you went with creating this hospital. What I did first, I wanted to research about somebody that worked in Sierra Leone that has the same value that I had. Firstly, services are free. Second, um, that every person that works in that service should be Sierra Leonean. And that the quality of the standard of what they give, it's not which is the problem in Sierra Leone, was a standard of Western. I mean, you know what I mean, the service. And then I came across this incredible woman called Anne Glog. I love <laughs> Oh, I only wish, wish she knows how much I love her. She is just the most incredible human being that exists. And, and people don't know of her. And she has four hospitals in four different parts of Africa. And we partner with her to expand the work in Sierra Leone. So we only work in Sierra Leone because Sierra Leone doesn't have a lot of help. We've gone through Ebola. We went to war. Now we have COVID. And Anne just is like almost like my exactly what my heart was and just placed upon hers, exactly what she stood for. And I just have this huge respect. So we, we're raising funds, but we are a partnership working to expand the need in Sierra Leone. The hospital there, Aberdeen Women's Center, is the second busiest maternal hospital in the country. Gosh. We're out of capacity because it's busy and it's free and it's a private hospital. 
if you buy Aminata's fantastic book, then you are helping this hospital. You if are. you go onto the website, which is? AminataMetunaFoundation.org. You can donate and you really should if you can afford to because it's such an important cause. If you can't afford to, you can tell your friends about this. Yes. You don't have to be in Australia to contribute to this. Anything that you can do to share the work that's being done by the foundation would be so welcome. Thank you. Can we just end on how you've ended with Sierra Leone? How do you feel about your home country now? And obviously you've been back, yes. but what, what's your relationship like? Oh, I'm proud. I'm really, really proud of my country. And I, I get to say that because I've gone through what they've gone through during the war. But when I'm there, I never understood when I came to Africa, uh, Australia, people say, oh, people in Africa or in India, they so they don't have much, but they're so happy. They are genuinely just happy. You can see them in the worst place, standing there with the biggest smile. And they go every day looking for the next day and the next day and the next minute. And uh, what they've gone through to be the people they are, I never thought I'll be that proud. So every time I'm in in Sierra Leone, I'm always Sierra Leone, and I always have this phrase: um, "I belong nowhere. I belong everywhere." So everywhere that I, I am breeding, that is home for me. And Sierra Leone is gonna be home forever. And I know that I am more better of use to them when I'm here talking about about my country. It is beautiful. It is stunning. And my mission is every Australian. In the next three to five years, we'll know Sierra Leone want to visit because the people are remarkable and the country is stunning, especially we have the most beautiful beaches. So come. Okay. <laughs> oh, we're so lucky. You are right. Australia is lucky indeed to be having you. I am lucky to talk. We got because... through this without me crying. So okay. that is good. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you. Because I love you.